Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is August 30th of 2012, and our guest tonight is Dr. Neil Neal. He is the author of Living with a Functioning Alcoholic, A Woman's Survival Guide. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reducing drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. And our guest, uh, Dr. Neil Neal, is uh, here with us right now. We're going to bring him on. How are you doing this evening, Neil? I'm doing just fine, thank you, Ken. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Well... Here we are. It's a really interesting book that you've written, and your website's really good, too. And I'm going to just start asking you uh, some questions. Um, is, okay. there such a, is there such a thing as an addictive personality? I don't think so. Um, compulsive behavior, we all have compulsive behavior in some areas and to some extent. And, uh, and compulsive drinking is what often gets called uh, an addictive personality. Somebody's compulsive. But there are many, many more people that are compulsive that don't drink. So it's just confusing two, two concepts, I believe. So there's not like uh, the mythology says, oh, uh, all addicts are pathological liars. That's not true, is it? No, it's not true. <laughs> So now, there's it, it happens it happens uh, it happens a lot as people start getting accused of doing things when they're drinking and they make up excuses but um uh, it doesn't doesn't automatically go with it Yeah, I think there's my a, heavy drinking days I didn't lie. I never lied either. I got in trouble for telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, that was more my problem too. <laughs> Yeah, people would ask, did you drink last night? And I'd say, yeah, I had a fifth of whiskey. I'd say, That's too much. You can't do that and come into work in the morning. <laughs> Watch me. I do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I wasn't lying to anybody about it. So, um, you know, I think this idea that, you know, there's some common personality traits that every addict or uh, every alcoholic or heavy drinker has, it's just not true. There's as much variation among them as there are among any individuals. Yes. So, um, get back on track now. My, my mind just jumped away. Um, you've written a book that's a survival guide, primarily for women whose husbands drink. I think it can be used the other way around, too. Um, yes, it works both ways. Um, what are some of the issues that uh, you have people coming to you with? Well, the biggest issue that women bring to me and the biggest issue that uh, men who have a drinking problem bring is they're worried about their relationship. Uh, when I worked in a treatment center, almost every man, that was his issue. I'm afraid my marriage is going down the tubes. And women come who have a, 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 um, 
a husband who's drinking excessively, they're worried about their relationship. Will it survive? That seems to be a big one. And do most of the relationships survive or not survive or Well, well that's a that's a really that's a really interesting question. Um many of them don't. Although although you couldn't get a group of people that try that try harder to not have the relationship end. Um but if if a if if one is drinking heavily, especially if it's a man, if one is drinking heavily um, and and won't take any steps to change that, the relationship tends to come to an end. Uh, but it's more complicated than that. Women will hold on for a really long time before they finally cut loose. Um, men will tend to leave the relationship sooner. Women are more likely to leave after the drinking stops, and that's a bit of a problem. That's what happened to me. Um, my wife encouraged me to quit. I found that it was affecting my health, and when I when I found that out, I I said, okay, I'm quitting, and I did. Two years later, she left me. It, and it turns out that that's a, that often happens because it's a big change, mm-hmm. and and when when there's a big change, everything changes. So, do you think the uh, the woman develops a certain role when she's uh, married to a heavy drinker? When he's no longer a heavy drinker, she loses that role. I think that I think that's part of what happens. Um, it's uh it's a surprise. Uh, it's a, it, it doesn't go back to anything before. It's a new. It's new territory. Um, my wife uh, at that time was. Uh, she was not a heavy drinker. She never has been. She's not today. But, but after I stopped, she was initially very pleased. But then one day she was very upset and said, "You're ruining my lifestyle." <laughs> <laughs> what was I supposed to do with that? Uh, she didn't have anybody to drink with when we went out to dinner. Mm-hmm. She said, it doesn't bother me. Have some wine. But she didn't like to have a wine if the other party wasn't drinking. And that was just that was just one thing. But I think a lot of things came up. A lot of, a lot of things are in our faces when we're really facing ourselves after we stop drinking. And um, there's far more to stopping drinking than just stopping drinking. So I think that means uh, people should really be prepared, you know, if they want their spouse to stop drinking, they should really be prepared for big changes afterwards. They should just be prepared that, you know, everything will be good. That's right. That's right. Um and that's part of what we can do with with books and programs like this. And um, there's lots of sources of help. Now, let me ask you: um, if somebody's have a heavy drinker, if they're having problems with alcohol, with alcohol, if they've been called an alcoholic, uh, is their only option to quit, or do some people moderate and cut back? 
Um, personally, I believe that far more people moderate and cut back than actually quit. Um, but they're never identified. Um, take uh, take uh, a man who uh, who's, who's supposed dies. You see him a year later, and oh my God, he's drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. He's got a problem. Mm-hmm. You see him three years later, and he's not. He's just drinking, light drinking socially, nothing much. He was using the alcohol to deal with his grief. And if you didn't know what was going on, you'd say, we have a raging alcoholic here. But he cleaned it up. But no, this isn't this isn't what I need. And I, I think that happens a great deal. I think it does too. Um, well, you know, there's a study uh, that was done by the U.S. government called NISARC, the National Epidemiological Study of Alcohol-Related Conditions, and they found that uh, just over half of people that had been diagnosed with alcohol dependence eventually uh, cut back. Uh, uh, half of people. Let me re- rephrase that. Half of people that recovered from alcohol dependence did it by cutting back and half by quitting. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know myself, uh, that was my approach. I, I mean, I reduced my drinking uh, greatly, you know, limiting it to only, you know, one to two nights a week, abstain at least five or six nights out of the week, you don't drink on work nights. Um, I still like to drink a lot when I drink, but... Uh, it's safe, it's at home, it's not on a work night, and it hasn't got me in any trouble in 10 years. Well, I, that that's good, and I think that's I think that's the experience of many people. I tend to get I tend to get people in in my practice that um that it's really got to a stage where um where they need to quit because they are addicted and and um, what I tell them is, if you if you go through this and you really get your life together and you're not drinking, uh, give yourself some time. Give yourself two two years, five years, whatever you need, and then try it again if you want. And if it starts escalating into a problem quickly, then there's your answer. You better just stay abstinent. But you may find that you can handle light social drinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's what I, my experience with them. Yeah, I found a lot of people that come to my group. It's actually um, almost almost the opposite because um, they don't want to be with the other groups. Uh, they don't they don't want to quit at least right now. So I'm more like saying, well, how about stopping for one day? How about stopping for one week? How about stopping for one month and see how that works for you? Uh, you know, some yeah. people they they they're not drinking heavily enough to have withdrawal if they stop for a day, but they haven't they haven't had a day off in a couple of years and there are several years. And I say, you know, let's get you to that first day off. And suddenly they start getting more days that they don't drink, or some of them take a month off. And some people say, I feel so good after taking this month off drinking. I don't want to start up again. That's that's actually what happened to me. The doctors told me I should quit drinking for five months and see what happens to all the physical symptoms that I was having. Well, I quit, 
And within a month, I felt better than I had in years. So I just never started again. I don't want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people find that out, you know, when they just uh, take, so take a little time off. It does, even a month or so, and then all of a sudden, wow, I feel great. <laughs> and lots of my problems went away. Yeah. Well, you gave me some of the typical questions that you get asked by spouses. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some of them. Um, okay. Wh- one is, uh, are the alcoholic blackouts a reason for uh, his bad behavior? No, but it provides a good excuse. Uh, what the, the fallacy is, that, that, and a lot of people buy into this. I've even seen courts buying into it. The fallacy is that the alcoholic blackout means that he was not responsible for his actions. Mm-hmm. What's really happening is the during a period of heavy drinking, when a person gets to that stage where they do have blackouts, the memory isn't laid down. Mm-hmm. So they may be perfectly conscious while they're intoxicated of what they're doing, but they don't remember the next day. Mm-hmm. So, so they are quite responsible. Um, I, I had. May I tell a short story? I knew a fellow who, uh, who was a heavy, heavy drinker. Uh, he also used other drugs, but he would go into a rage and um, attempt to kill somebody with his bare hands, and it never happened because he get other, he had arranged with other people to pull him off if he hmm. got to that stage. So he was worried about it, and he went to the local police station and said, look, I have this problem. Could I come and sleep it off in the jail if I feel like I'm getting to that place where I'm going to kill somebody? And they let him. So he would wake up in the morning in jail, would have no idea of why he was there, whether he'd kill somebody or, or whether he'd come volitionally. Uh, he just wouldn't know he would because he had no memory of the night before. But the night before, while intoxicated, he made the rational decision to go to the jail because he was getting into a dangerous state. Yeah, that's something we've talked we talk about quite a bit with uh, the people in our group. Um, if they have problems, you know, with getting into fights or doing things like that, you know. Make a plan so that, you know, if you are going to drink, that you won't be in that situation. Some people decide that they want to drink at home and not go to any more bars because they got in too many bar fights. Yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good strategy. But if they're having alcoholic blackouts, it means that the drinking has got to the states where there's enough brain damage um, from past drinking that... They do have a problem. Oh, blackouts are definitely a huge problem. Um, there are some ways, though, that the people can tr- can uh, generally avoid them. Uh, one thing that really brings them about is a very rapid uh, change in concentration of blood alcohol. So when it spikes very high in the brain very quickly, that's when people get the blackouts. And if they can slow their drinking down or eat first so that the alcohol is absorbed more slowly, um, a lot of people can find that they don't have any more blackouts. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's a good strategy. Uh, let me ask you some more of these questions yeah. that yeah. a wife might ask. Um, she might ask, "Is he do is he drinking to avoid me and the children?" The chances are, in in most cases, he is unhappy about something, um, and and he's medicating his unhappiness. He'll feel better if he's drinking. Um, but if there's any conflict or he feels angry about something, he looks around, the spouse and the children are the only ones there, therefore they must have caused it. They're the ones he points the fingers at. So so if that's where, if, if he may cause the conflict, but if that's what he's trying to avoid, he may he may use the family as an excuse. You made me drink. Why did you ask me that question? You made me drink. And if he's intoxicated, he doesn't have to deal with it. But it's not their fault. It's still his choice. Mm-hmm. And the wife might ask, why does my husband drink to excess? And what would you answer that? Well, a good deal of it is the part of what I just said. He's unhappy and he's medicating. It could just be that's what he's always done. And it's just a habit. He doesn't want to change. Um, he may drink because uh, for, for social reasons. That's what his friends all do. Um, he may drink because he's feeling good. He may drink because he's feeling bad. But that's what he does. Okay, and she might ask, uh, should she go to Al-Anon? With, with that's that's a tricky that's a tricky one. Um, if a woman asks me that, that's coming to me in in therapy, I'll say if you go, you may get some help, but don't let it become a lifestyle. Get what you need and then leave. Uh, support groups can be a trap, and um, I had one client who went to Al-Anon, and um, I wrote a, an article uh, one time about uh, I called "Don't Be a Support Group Groupie," <laughs> and uh, and she wrote to me and thanked me. She said she got what she wanted from Al-Anon, but after two years, the the problem had really passed and. And she wanted to leave, but they made her feel very, very guilty for wanting to leave, and so she stayed another year. And my article gave her the gave her the out. So that's that's the trap. If you're going to belong to a group, belong to a group that's about something positive, not something negative. Well, that brings uh, us to uh, that, that's com that's a comment about support groups. With 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 uh, the hams groups, I'm sure people get a lot out of it, and and probably many of them move on, and some of them stay because they want to help others. Fine, but yeah, you don't we, have to stay in it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we actually expect the majority of people will move on after a while. Um, we don't expect a, a permanent uh, attendance to be the norm. That's the exception. So, yeah. uh, which brings us uh, right into the next question. A lot of people think that the only way that a person can quit alcohol, the only way a, a so-called alcoholic can quit, I don't like that word too much, the only way someone with alcohol dependence quit is a lifelong attendance at AA meetings. And is that true? No. Um, there, there was a study, and I can't, I haven't been able to locate it, of of people who attend an AA, uh, uh, AA, one in 20 will be there a year later. Uh, and and But only 4% of people in the U.S. that have an alcohol problem ever attend an AA meeting. So you're, t- you're, you're getting a very tiny segment. The majority of people who have an, who have an alcohol problem never get on the radar because eventually they leave it behind. They deal with it by themselves. Um, if they're addicted, it, it's like they're going to come to their attention that they have a problem, and they may have a, they may have some difficulty with with uh, withdrawal, but they quietly find a way of doing it. And once a person is out of the alcohol, and they got there by by choosing to take steps to get out of it, once they're out of it, they can choose to stay out of it, and pretty soon it becomes irrelevant. Um, I I got up at an AA meeting one time, the only time I ever went to an AA meeting, and I said, "Hi, my name is Neil. I used to be an alcoholic. Well, did I ever get hell for that? <laughs> I, <can't laughs> I didn't know any better." <laughs> Uh, well, if you're not a, if you used to, if you're not an alcoholic now, you never wear. Blah blah blah. They really <laughs> got really got a tongue lashing. Well, that that's silliness. Of course, you can get over uh, over a bad habit permanently. Of course, you can. That reminds me of a story that happened to me. Um, I hadn't drank for thirty days, so I thought I might as well go in and you know, pick up my medallion. And, you know, so uh, I said, you know, I raised my hand. I hadn't drank for 30 days. And they all said, how did you do it? And had, you know, me come up to speak. And I said, well, um, I didn't do, I didn't go to any meetings, but I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy and that worked, so I didn't drink for 30 days. And, you know, not one person would talk to me after the group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a whole, that's a whole mythology. Um uh, I, I understand a, a couple of uh, um, American courts actually ruled that AA was a Christian religious cult. <laughs> so, anyway, that doesn't get much press. <laughs> yeah, it has been ruled in, well, one of them is a huge uh, circuit court that covers like nine states and said you can't force anybody to go to AA, you have to offer them a secular alternative. So you have to at least offer them one secular alternative to AA, or or you can't, you know, force them to do anything. So that was a huge step uh, for the court system. So yeah, well, that's that's good. It's uh, um, 
I live in Canada, and courts don't order people to go to anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Canada's a lot saner about a lot of things than the U.S. There's a little bit of extremism down here. Um, but let me ask you, is alcoholism a disease? No. And why do you say no? Well, um, when you stop it, uh, when you stop drinking, uh, and you get the alcohol out of your system, you don't have it anymore. It was a choice. Diseases generally aren't something we choose. Um, you can choose to drink, to drink. It affects your brains, but you can choose, you can choose to take antidepressants, and they affect your brain. Um, the brain recovers after a person stops drinking. There may be some damage, but there's a damage from playing football too. Um, it doesn't have the characteristics of a disease. Do you think that if people believe the disease theory, at least some of them, it could keep them drinking? Oh, yes. Um, and some of them... The trouble with the disease, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Say, I have a disease. That's why I have to go to AA for the rest of my life. I'll always be in recovery. And others say, I have a disease. That's why I drink. It can be used as an excuse to continue as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like yeah. genetics. Well, I I got it honestly. My father drinks, so of course I drink. Well, that's that's an excuse. I think it is. Well, what are some of the things that the spouse can do? Um, is there anything the spouse can do for themselves or to help their partner to make a change? Well. There certainly, there certainly are. Um, there's a bunch of things I can avoid doing, um, but I guess most people know those things. But the biggest thing they, the biggest thing they need to do, is stand on their own two feet. The world does not revolve around the husband, and and if he's a heavy drinker. He may want it that way. He may want everything to revolve around him. Everybody tiptoes around and and what I, does what I call the dance, the dance of alcohol. So if there is that tendency, if she has that tendency, and she can see that she's doing that, uh, if, if he's drinking, she's extra quiet. She doesn't tell her friends what's going on. In fact, she's withdrawing from her friends because... He doesn't want the family secret out there. And if that's happening, she needs to address it and look after herself, figure out who she is and what she wants. When she does that, um, that will that will create uh, more issues. But if but if he can see that she really is standing up for herself and her kids, and that she may leave if if he doesn't clean up, he may do something about it. He may start admitting that he does have a problem. 
But as long as she buys into it, if she takes the bait when he tries to pick a fight, if she um, if she goes to the bar to bring him home, uh, uh, if she does those kinds of things, he's got her hooked. Why should he change? Life is going along very well for him, he thinks. Maybe a small world that he lives in, but it's still comfortable for him. Well, I think one issue that faces a lot of women, and it used to be much bigger issue, it's um, but it's one of economic security. If the uh, husband is bringing in the only paycheck, uh, and she has no other financial security, that's a huge problem, isn't it? it it's an issue, and in many cases, and and this is more from clients in the states. In many cases, many cases. He has convinced her that if she leaves him, she'll be destitute. He won't provide any support. She'll just have, just have nothing. And uh, that usually isn't the case. Uh, there are remedies, but she'll have to use the remedies. She'll have to take the legal route if she's if if she really is going to leave. But there's a big myth around the whole thing of uh, of economic security. Um, uh, last year, I had two people write to me just about the same time, and one of them, uh, her husband was a professional, and she had um, a moderate income job, but she couldn't leave a disastrous marriage because it would be just too hard economically. And the other woman, um, um, she had a bunch of kids, and she wasn't working, and the husband had a moderate job and was drinking, and it was a disastrous marriage. And she wrote and thanked me for what I had written because she said she left her husband. She's now living in assisted housing with her children, and she said it was the best decision I ever made. Life is so much better. So <laughs> it's the perception of what the economics are going to be. Yeah, I think uh, women really need to assess the situation and look at what some of the possibilities are. There, There is help with housing, as you just mentioned, assisted housing, if you don't have any income. Um, you, know, you can make plans to... You can make plans to get out of the marriage and stay intact. You can also decide that you need to go back to school or you need to find a job to get some economic security before you leave the relationship, but you know, not just stay stuck in the same place you've been stuck at. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a bit like the, the woman who says, I don't have any choice. I have to stay for economic reasons or some other reason, it's it's really a parallel to the man who says, I have to drink, I don't have any choice. So I always have choices. Okay, um, well, we're running down towards the end of the half hour, so um, let's finish up with a couple more questions. Um, okay. What do you think about uh, alcohol and drug rehab centers? Are there good ones and bad ones? There are good ones, 
and there are many that operate um, um, as uh, as recycle programs. <laughs> I say that a bit tongue in cheek, um, but one very good um, uh, alcohol and drug counseling professional got fired from a big, well-known treatment center because his clients weren't relapsing. And his boss said, we're going to have to let you go. This whole industry is based on relapse, and if people don't relapse, we're out of business. So, yeah, there are bad ones. And there, but there are good ones, and and uh, and if you if if somebody's looking for help and they call up a treatment center and and um, and say, well, I have a I have a drinking problem, but I'm I'm uh, I don't have a disease. I know it's my problem. If they start getting a spiel about it's a disease or you'll always be in recovery, run, find a different one. Well, I know you were associated for a while with uh, the Sunshine Coast Health Center. Yes. Which, uh, yeah, they struck me as being a really good one. I had some contacts they, with them they before. Are I, yeah, before I contacted are, you. Uh, oh, yeah. They're very good. Yeah, I was very impressed with them, and I thought they were an excellent resource. So I was very happy when I saw that you had been associated with them. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the things that they have going for them, they don't make a big deal of it, is that the the uh, brother and sister started it, and neither one of them had an alcohol problem. Had that, had ever had an alcohol problem. They saw a need and they decided to do something about it. Uh, the trouble with many treatment programs is that people got to it by having a drinking problem, going to AA. Uh, and then taking some counseling and getting hired by uh, by a treatment center that's staffed with former AA clients. And so they perpetuate the notion. And that was about 95% of the treatment centers. I think it's getting better now. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed changes. Um, lots of people are open to new ideas. Lots of counselors and psychotherapists and even treatment centers are opening up to new ideas. There's still a lot that are still sticks in the mud and staying back in the Stone Age, but uh, there's been a lot of changes. Another way to, another way to spot the, the ones that are are moving forward is to look at the staff credentials. The um, a good treatment center is going to have some medical people and some um, counselors, maybe even a chiropractor. They'll have a variety of professions on staff or or access to them. That's because they believe they come from a position that somebody can get over this problem. Mm-hmm. If you believe that that it's a permanent condition. Your clients are always going to be in recovery. Why do you need all those professionals? And so you tend to get a very under-trained staff. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're going to bring the show to a close, so I want yeah. to uh, plug your book once more. The book is called Living with a Functioning Alcoholic, 
A Woman's Survival Guide by Dr. Neil Neal. And the uh, website, your website, is www.neilneal.com. That's with two L's on both of those names. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight. And what would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, the the um, the book is available on my website, or as, as a book or an ebook. It's also available on Amazon as a book or a Kindle book. So there's lots of different ways you can get it. And uh, and the, with this whole alcohol field, there is always hope. Never give up. That's okay, my, that's my message. Thank you very much, and everyone, come back next week at this time. Our guest will be Dr. Leanne Kaskutas, who will be talking about what is the definition of recovery. She's doing a huge Internet survey on what people think on this question, and we'll talk about that then. So thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night.